0: Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone, and happy holidays. Well, I'm still on the road this week, spending this week in Arkansas and then off to Utah next week. So, smack dab in the middle of this two and a half week uh, road trip. And just keeping you up to date on my whereabouts because I know my whereabouts is really important to you. <laughs> Also, a reminder that the last episode of 2021 will be out on December 13th, and then the podcast will be taking a three-week break before returning on January the 10th. So including today, there will be just two episodes left before we break. As always, I want to say thanks for listening in again this week, and a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to those of you who've been longtime listeners for a while now. I really do appreciate all of you, and just appreciate the fact that you tune in each week or most weeks. Today, my guest is none other than Dr. George Sugai. George is a retired professor from the University of Connecticut. He is one of the founders of the Center for Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports. He was a prolific researcher. And as you are about to hear shortly, listeners, he is unquestionably one of the most influential people on my career. He really did shape so much of who I've become as an educator and I'm really excited that he's agreed to join me today. This will be part one, by the way, of our conversation. We'll have part two next week as well. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to focus on the importance of student mindset and belief and how it greatly influences student receptivity to feedback and their willingness to keep learning. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with George Sugai is coming up, but I want to open this week with the story of how I met George and why George is definitively on my Mount Rushmore of influencers on my career. In August of 2000, I was sent, along with three other administrators in our school district, I was sent to participate in the PBIS coaches training in Vancouver. Now, I had just completed my first year as vice principal at Summerland Middle School, And so it was me, it was two other middle school vice principals in the district, and a principal of one of our largest elementary schools. The training consisted of a week-long deep dive in August, and three two-day follow-up sessions spread throughout the school year. The week-long training focused mostly on our conceptual understanding of PBIS. And and then the follow-ups would be more training of conceptual understanding, but also having us share our implementation efforts, our successes, and our struggles. Now, the week-long training in August of 2000 was at the University of British Columbia Law Building, and in many ways, it was really the perfect spot for that session. Now, it was a lecture hall, so that's not great for group discussion, but the tables themselves extended the width of each row of seats. They were deep enough for our three-inch binders and our notebooks. Remember, tech wasn't the same as it is today, so we had these three-inch binders full of material, and the room was tiered. So everyone had a clear view of the screen and a clear view of the presenter. I wasn't really sure what to expect from the training. I knew only what our superintendent had told us when he told us we were going to be trained in PBIS. And I thought, well, it's certainly relevant for my work at the middle school level. Plus, it was a chance to go back to Vancouver four times during the 2000-2001 school year because we had just moved away from the city the year prior, and I still kind of missed the city. But needless to say, day one was epic. I'd actually never experienced any professional learning like it. I was heading into my 10th year in education, and while I had attended conferences and workshops throughout the 1990s, they seemed to either offer only one thing or the other. And look, maybe this was just my experience, but it seemed like either I got substance or I got engagement, but not both. It was either a university professor providing incredible depth, but really not very engaging, using overhead transparencies with size four font on them, or it was a practitioner spouting platitudes with no real substance to back the assertions. The only exception to that was the year prior. It was August of 1999. This was my first professional learning experience in my new district. We actually had the opportunity back in 1999 to spend two days with Rick Dufour in a joint professional learning session with my administrative colleagues in School District 67, but also our colleagues from the Vernon School District, which was just to the north, about 90 minutes north from Penticton. We were at the Silver Star Ski Resort and we had two days with Rick Dufour, which was a phenomenal professional learning experience. But other than that, my professional learning throughout the 1990s had been, well, let's just call it less than favorable. But George was different. From day one, I could see he had both form and substance. He had the research at his fingertips, but unlike my previous experiences, he was also incredibly compelling. He had command of the content, he would inject humor, and he had a presentation style that flowed effortlessly as he he led us through the day one agenda. Not only was I immersing myself in the substance of that day one content, but I was also captivated by the person who was leading us. Well, the four of us left that first day feeling completely overwhelmed, but also totally energized. We were overwhelmed because the agenda was aggressive. And so we did cover quite a bit of material on that first day. And that was just one day. We still had four days to go. But we were energized because George had masterfully let us to understand that we could transform our school's culture through the teaching of pro-social behavior and the systemic approach to a three-tiered logic or a three-tiered framework. We know that the three-tiered framework or logic is still you know, quite common today. It's fairly ubiquitous. But 21 years ago, it wasn't that common. It was still relatively new within the school setting. So our heads were spinning. And that first night at dinner, we we could not stop talking about what we had learned that day. We were excited for day two. We were energized, but we were also mentally exhausted. So I don't think any of us had any trouble sleeping that night. So we're back at it the next day. And I honestly can't wait for the session to begin. It was one of those typical agendas, right? You've got 90 minutes, there's a break, 90 minutes, lunch, 90 minutes, a break, 90 minutes, and we're finished up for the day. Now, I don't know why this happened or how this happened. I just know that it happened about halfway through the first segment. So we're about 45 minutes in on day two, and George is now going deeper with school-wide systems and some implementation models. I get this overwhelming rush of emotion and energy. I know this is going to sound a bit corny, and look, you're just going to have to take my word for it, but I promise you, this is exactly how it happened. As I'm sitting in the session 45 minutes into day two, I could physically feel a tidal wave of energy and emotion hit me. And as I watched George presenting, a voice inside my head said rather loudly, I'm going to do that one day. I'm going to do what he's doing right now. Now, remember, this is day two of what is essentially a year-long training, and I'm already making internal declarations that I'm going to be like George. But that feeling never left me. It never left me for the entire year. The rest of the week, the three follow-up sessions, the work we were doing in our school, that feeling never left me, and it actually fueled me, because I knew that to be like George, I had to develop a level of expertise so the work, our efforts at Summerland Middle School were judicious. I was, of course, responsible for leading this effort. And I don't say that from a position of ego or arrogance. That's what I was told. That's the superintendent said, you're going to this training. You are expected to lead this initiative in our middle schools. So we were expected to do that. So every detail mattered to me. Every effort mattered to me because what was fueling me was that overwhelming feeling that I wanted to be like George. George. It was overwhelming, but of course, it actually happened. Now, I tell you the following not to boast, but to tell you what happened and to tell you what an incredible opportunity I had to work closely with George. And to this day, I am incredibly grateful for the opportunity that was put in front of me. And I owe so much of my current professional existence to my experience with George Sagai. Okay, so here's the timeline. August of 2001, so we're now a year beyond that first training that I went to, I was invited back to that same training and asked to present a 90-minute segment on our year one journey. What did we do? What did we accomplish? How did we go about the work? In August of 2002, BC Case had put together a long-term plan for developing local and provincial expertise. So I was asked by BC Case along with Craig Gillis and Janice Coomer to co-facilitate the coaches training in British Columbia. Same format, five days, three follow-up sessions. But now the three of us were going to co-facilitate with George. He was going to coach us. He was going to mentor us and help slowly turn the training over to us. We would present certain segments and then George would debrief with us after and help us understand both the content more intimately and refine our presentation skills. We did that for two years. Now in August of 2004, I think it was, Craig, Janice, and I took over the training. George felt we were ready to take it on without him, so we did. And that lasted, I think, another three or four years until there were funding issues and shifts in provincial mandates and all of these sort of efforts kind of fizzled, but there was about a three to four-year stretch there where we were still conducting that training. Now, during that period of time, I also had the opportunity to work with the Department of Education in Nova Scotia and Newfoundland in that four-year stretch. And I also worked a lot with schools in Western Canada. And I'm I'm telling you that because I want you to know that, again, not not to brag or say, hey, look what I did, but to let you know that that feeling I had on that second day of the training actually manifested. It was also in that mid-2000s era when assessment also emerged as an area of interest for me. But before there was assessment and grading, what I think most people kind of know me for, there was PBIS. But here's the real story. I'm not sure I'd be where I am today without George Sugai. The example he set and the mentoring he provided was undoubtedly the reason I gained so much confidence to begin facilitating breakout sessions, full-day professional learning sessions, and multi-day events. I admired him. At first, I might have even mimicked him a little because everything he was was what I wanted to be. The command of the content, the respect of the room, and the ability to literally answer any question any participant put forth, that was captivating. I would not be who I am today without George Sagai. He is unquestionably the reason that I bristle at fluff. When I hear presenters or see things on social media or other venues that lack depth and lack substance, it still to this day makes my brain hurt. And unfortunately, there is a lot of that out there today. It almost feels like there's more of that than ever, especially on social media. And you know, listeners, how much I talk about social media. George helped me understand the importance of systems behind the practices. That creating predictable systems and routines for the adults to ensure the sustained use of effective practices is how we make real and permanent changes to our school cultures. But but really, it's how you make real and permanent changes to anything. There are, of course, others on that Mount Rushmore that I spoke about earlier. But in my professional life, even though my professional life is now mostly about assessment and grading, in my professional life, there has only been one George, and I will be forever grateful for the opportunities I had to work with him. To have that kind of influence at that point in my career was, as I look back, unimaginable. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com/podcasts. Now, let's get back to the episode. Here today for the interview is Dr. George Sugai. George is Professor Emeritus at the University of Connecticut, having retired in 2019. His research and practice interests include school-wide positive behavioral support behavioral disorders, applied behavioral analysis, organizational management, classroom and behavioral management, and school discipline. He has been a classroom teacher, a program director, a personnel preparer, and an applied researcher. Currently, he is a senior advisor for the OSEP Center on Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports. And listeners, of course, as you just heard, George was a monumental figure and influence on the trajectory of my career. So I am personally thrilled to have George here today. So George, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to see you, Tom. It's great to see you, and all I can say, George, is that if I were to put together a Mount Rushmore of influencers on my career, uh, you definitely would be on there, and and maybe even be my first choice. And so, well, I'm really, it's a little really it's a
1: little that. worrisome that uh, I may be responsible <laughs> for your behaviors, but
0: you are you. Uh, I, it's it's too late now, George. You've had too much influence me over the yeah, years. Good uh, and there bad. is. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take it for sure. There, uh, of course, is a ton to get to. And of course, uh, we're going to do this in two parts. So listeners, you are going to get two weeks of George. You'll get a double dose as we head into the winter break. Um, but before we get into the specific topics of our conversation, I want to ask you to take us back to the beginning of your career. Of course, most would be familiar with your work uh, from your days at the University of Oregon and, of course, more recently at the University of Connecticut. And of course, as the co-director of the National Center of Positive Behavioral Interventions And supports, but can you take us back and just fill in the earlier part of the resume? Take us back to the period of time where you started your career, and then to the point where you ended up at the University of Oregon.
1: Uh, Great question, and I think it's one that is important for each of us to pay attention to, because our early influences clearly shape you know where we go and the kind of decisions we make and experiences we have. Uh, I'm gonna do it a little bit differently because like you just mentioned, I've been retired for a couple of years. And one of my interests in my retirement is to go back and look at some of my early influences. And one in particular I'd like to mention just because of the times we were in is that um, I have over the last couple of years been trying to visit all 10 of the internment camps where the Japanese Americans were interned during World War II. And the reason that's important to me is because my parents were interned. And as you're probably thinking, that internment experience of my parents influenced how they raised me. And that has shaped a lot of who I am. And part of my retirement has been go back to explore that. And let me kind of explain how that's important. Uh, As a Japanese American, I am a third generation, which means I was born in California, as were my parents, but we were treated as non-citizens during World War II. And there are things happening nowadays that seem to mimic or copy or parallel some of those kinds of political decisions and actions that were happening. And uh, going back and revisiting my early experiences has been pretty important to me because it shapes a lot of how I view schools and families and communities and how we treat each other and how we look at differences and how we appreciate the diversity that might be around us. So I wanted to mention that just because it has been so important to me in kind of seeing who I am now. Uh, part of that experience shaped me into my first undergraduate career, which was at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Some of the listeners probably knew that I was a botany major at Santa Barbara. I was not in education. I was not in sociology. I was not in psychology. Uh, I was an old hippie, and I was really interested in environmental issues. and sort of the humanistic part of what was happening during the Vietnam War. And I wanted to become a parks ranger, frankly, and I wanted to communicate with nature. Um, and I became a botanist. Now, the reason that's important for two reasons. One is um, it taught me about the scientific method. It taught me about the importance of science and decision-making and how do you test ideas? how do you confirm theory? And I mentioned that because that is what I carried into my later career in education, is this sort of scientific way of viewing questions and problems and issues. So I think that's important to remember because not a lot of us in education have come up through these sort of the natural sciences. The second reason I wanted to bring this up is because I took a job as the nature director in an Easter seal camp for children with disabilities in the Santa Cruz Mountains of California during the summer, just to make some money to get out into the redwoods and so forth. Well, I ended up being a camp counselor in charge of six campers ages 16 through 52 who had disabilities. I had no idea how to push a wheelchair. I had no idea how to, how to uh, help somebody who needed to um, feed themselves and other things. But that experience immediately turned my head around and I became very focused on disabilities and I switched my career from botany to working in special education. Um, and so that early, those kind of early experiences, my, how my parents raised me, their experiences that shaped how they in, interact with me and my initial experiences in the scientific kind of realm really shaped who and kind of decisions I made when I moved into education. Yeah.
0: And then where did the career start in education? Why So special education, where, where did you begin your career sort of within the school system or uh, as a classroom teacher? Where did that all Yeah. Be? So uh,
1: as I mentioned, I got my um, degree, undergraduate degree in botany because my parents said, you got to get something that we paid for. You can't switch majors now. <laughs> and so um, I said, fine. And then I immediately went to the University of Washington and I got my teaching degree in special education there. Yeah. Uh, my vision was to become a high school science teacher and mm-hmm. a special ed teacher. So okay. I could take care of both of those things. Well, I became much more interested in kids with disabilities, in particular, kids with behavior problems, kids with emotional disturbance. Uh, on campus, a recruiter came from some place called Aurora, Colorado, and I had no idea where that was. Mm-hmm. I assumed it was up in the Rockies. I was going to be so excited about that w- moving to the Rockies. Well, it turns out that Aurora is where Stapleton Airport used to be, which is where the current airport is now, out in the plains of Colorado. And in 1974, I took a job as a resource room teacher for kids with disabilities. I mentioned the year because that was the year of 94-142. That's when the first legislation became formalized in the United States to serve and meet the needs of kids with disabilities. So I had the responsibility of setting up one of the first resource rooms for special education in Colorado. Had no idea how to do it. We wrote some of the first IEPs, had no idea how to do that. Um, It was a phenomenal experience because the kids and the families with whom I worked with taught me what special ed was about, Mm -hmm. but I also had to respond to these new laws that were out there. I did that for four years and I decided that this is fine. But somehow I'm not having the I don't have the experience. I don't have the knowledge to actually do what really needs to be done. So I went back to the University of Washington and got my doctorate and I wanted to become an administrator of school programs because I thought that's where the influence is going to be. Well, I really got turned on to research and I decided that I wanted to become a preparer of special ed teachers and I really wanted to do experimental research in special ed. Mm-hmm. And that's when I took my first job at the University of Kentucky, which not many people know. I yeah. uh, worked there for about four years. Then I got an opportunity to work at the University of Oregon, which is what you mentioned earlier. Right. Uh, was my, my most, I guess, biggest kind of career change.
0: Mm-hmm. So so let's now talk about the center. Yes, right. So take us back to the beginning days, the early days of, of the center for PBIS, uh, yourself, Rob Horner, others. T- tell us about the the genesis of the center and where how that all came about
1: right so i started at the university of oregon in 1984 and again like many of the things i've done i walked into it not knowing what it meant to work at a university um but what i did learn is that there were some really smart people there and uh, i'm smart enough to know to to kind of hang out with those kinds of people and learn from them and create experiences and so forth and i mention that in part because i think that has been uh, part of my mode of operation throughout my career is working with people smarter than myself. And I think that's one thing that all people in this profession should be thinking about because uh, the the field is rich with people that are smart. Um, Like I said, I started in 1984, but around 1990, uh, 1990, 91 or so, I met this guy named Jeff Colvin. And Jeff Colvin, as many of you know, probably listeners know, is a person from Australia who is brilliant at school-wide discipline and working with kids with behavior disorders. And he and I partnered up with Ed Kameanui, who is a reading guy, direct instruction guy. And we decided that, you know, we're not doing very good good job if we just think about behavior management as one kid at a time. And we decided to look at school-wide discipline. And what we learned is much of school-wide discipline is reactive and punishing. And we said, there's gotta be a better way. And Ed and Jeff taught me that one of the best things you could do is teach rather than punish. Mm -hmm. Teach social skills, teach academics so kids experience success on the academic side, build their self-concepts and so forth. So the early years of PBIS started with something called Project Prepare. And Project Prepare was our early effort to do school-wide positive discipline. Mm -hmm. And then as British Columbia knows, it turned into something called EBS, Effective Behavior Support, because some of our schools there wanted to become an EBS school that they kind of named themselves. And so the project became EBS. And then I met people like yourself and Kathy Champion and Mm -hmm. Don Chapman and others, and we transferred EBS up to British Columbia. And as a result of that experience, we said, you know what, we could probably do this better in the United States as well. And we had a chance to apply for a grant. We applied for this grant called the PBIS grant. Fortunately, Rob Horner and I, who kind of wrote the initial grant with, um, with some others, got it. And that's where the, the, the center got started. Yeah. I'll finish by just saying, we had no idea what it meant to be a PBIS center. We didn't, we just thought we were just gonna do school-wide discipline. You know, we just thought we we're gonna go out and do in-services to schools. But over time we learned that that wasn't the best way to go. Right. And I'll kind of address that as we as we go through the rest of the, the time. Sure.
0: Am I remembering correctly that you, and I think you and you had told me once that the Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports was the name that you came up with because the grant application required a title or something. Am I remembering that correctly?
1: You are remembering it exactly right. And yeah. the the interesting thing was, is when the United States Congress wrote the legislation for the funding of the grant, Mm -hmm. somebody called it the PBIS grant or the application, the PBIS application.
0: Yeah.
1: I don't know who named it that. I don't know where it came from. It wasn't our decision. When we got the grant, we wanted to change the name, frankly, because Mm. PBIS was not a known set of terms. It was not familiar to educators. And we wanted to call it, you know, EBS, so we wanted effective of support. We wanted to call it positive yeah. discipline. Anything, except PBIS. <laughs> and, but and by by are. law, by law we had to call it that because that's what our yeah. funding was. That's what the yeah. Congress wanted. Right. Right. So that was 1996 or so that I got funded, yeah. and we kept the name. And yeah. fortunately, people like yourself and others around the, the United States and Canada made it successful. And PBIS created a life of its own, and that's how yeah. it became sort of a term that people identified with it.
0: Sure. Yeah. the the EBS part, I, I still remember we we were all schooled on the, um, the the work and the and the forging of the the new pathway by Fernridge Middle School. Uh, and that's their exactly EBS right. Efforts, and uh, I think we we can all remember that. Okay. So let's let's talk about PBIS now because we know that PBIS has has its roots in the behaviorist theory of psychology, but of course there are other theories out there. Um, One that of course is quite prominent today is the constructivist theory of education or or constructive theory of of psychology, which surmises that students construct knowledge through their experiences. And we see that manifesting in project-based learning and inquiry-based learning approaches, et cetera. So here's where I wanna go with this. How important do you think it is for the everyday classroom teacher or school administrator or school district to subscribe to a theory of psychology as they approach the work? Because I hear some educators, you know, for example, proclaiming things like, I'm a constructivist teacher. Um, Is that important uh, to be grounded in a particular theory of psychology? Or do you think that actually might interfere with our ability to adapt to the complexities of learning and the complexities of behavioral support?
1: Right. So I'm going to answer broadly first and then get really narrow with your with your Perfect. question um, and go back to what we, we just talked about with PBIS. I think it's really important to understand at the beginning, and I'm going to say this throughout the discussion, is that PBIS is not a practice. It's not a theory. PBIS is really just a framework or a logic. It's a way of doing business. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, though, I think it's important to know that the logic has a theoretical or conceptual foundation and that comes out of the behavioral sciences and i say that intentionally because rob and i are behavior analysts and we decided to build an approach that we could defend that was theoretical defend theoretically defendable Mm -hmm. meaning that there has been a tradition behind it so the behavioral sciences has a long tradition and it has a lot of manifestations and a lot of variations and some things that people accept and some things people don't accept but it has some fundamental principles that guide its implementation Mm -hmm. and again i say that because i want people to understand that 30 years later pbis is still a behaviorally based framework and it's dangerous i think to try to say that it's something that it isn't or try to modify it when the research hasn't been there to support that Mm -hmm. so having said that i think it's really important for every educator to be able to define who they are with respect to their practice and that is as you just said identify some some theoretical framework that grounds their decisions that grounds their actions Mm -hmm. now what it's important to me is i'm perfectly fine with people picking a theory as long as it's defendable, meaning that there is a tradition, some empirical support for its basic fundamental rules, and so forth. I have chosen the behavioral sciences, behavioral theory, as my framework for doing business because I believe I can defend its basic framework. I can say what its advantages and disadvantages are and how it is the same and different from other theories. Mm-hmm. The constructivist theory and other theories, not just the constructivist, sometimes come in conflict with the behavioral theory, because by definition, they're different.
0: Right.
1: You know, and it's probably going to be always a case where there's an acceptance or unacceptance based on one's view of the world. If you're not a behaviorist, no problem, you know, and you want to approach your solutions for classroom problems for teaching in a way that you feel is comfortable. I know that one thing you're going to ask me towards the end of this interview is what's most important to me. And I'm Mm -hmm. going to argue that one thing that's most important to me is, is the student benefiting from the decisions I make. Mm -hmm. If I can't document that the student isn't benefiting, then I'm not making good decisions. One thing I like about the behavioral sciences, it gives me the tools that shortens the line between my decisions and student outcomes. Uh-huh. meaning i can say if i do this there's a great chance that this kid is going to be able to navigate his or her environment better and i'm going to really try to shorten that line because student benefit is my primary goal uh-huh. i don't care if i'm working with the u.s department of education secretary when i make policy decisions with him or her i'm going to say i need to make sure i can draw a line between that decision and the student benefit uh-huh. Uh-huh. so to get very specific you mentioned something about it's really important for students to construct their own knowledge, to construct their own kind of perceptions of their experiences. I absolutely agree with that. I think that makes sense. Kids need to be able to become good self-managers. They need to be able to make good decisions. One thing that the behavioral or the PBIS approach focuses on, however, or though, is that kids need to be sometimes taught some of the fundamental tools to be able to navigate their environment. How to learn how to, uh, assess their environment how to learn how to make decisions about what other people are doing how to learn about what is disrespectful and respectful and by learning those skills they learn they have experiences that shape who they become uh-huh. how to shape their future decisions and behaviors and so forth i think our approach to becoming self-actualized is a little different meaning that we're tool driven in the beginning or we want to help kids learn how to organize their environment for success. I have two kids. I want them to become good self managers. I want them to become independent, but I also want them to learn how to make good decisions that is not harmful to themselves, others, or the environment. And so I want to help make sure that they have experiences that help shape that kind of perspective. That's a lot of words to say theory is important. Yeah. I'm not trying to, yeah.
0: I I wonder sometimes if it's, if it's, if sometimes we go too far, I guess I'm just trying to hypothesize that maybe we lock ourselves into a silo and aren't a little more malleable about the, the overlap between a lot of theories and and practice. Um, yeah. I'm wondering too, George, just since you brought it up, are are there theories out there from your perspective? And I'm legitimately curious about this, that from your perspective are not defendable. Um, yes. Uh, I
1: don't know that I could. I'm, I would, and I, I don't feel like I'm in a position to kind of name them. However,
0: okay.
1: Okay. I think good theories have a strong empirical foundation, okay. meaning that there has been tests or studies or research done to ba- test the basic premises or basic fundamental rules. You mentioned something about positive reinforcement, about the the mm-hmm. impact of feedback, impact of experiences the behavioral literature is overflowing with studies that document how influential experiences are to learning Mm -hmm. when we give corrective feedback in reading when we tell somebody that that is wrong or incorrect Mm -hmm. when we tell somebody here is a better way all that form of feedback Mm -hmm. has been experimentally been tested and if it increases future performance, it's been labeled positive reinforcement. Right. I think where we get in trouble is when a, a counter theory or an opposing theory puts a value on that statement. Oh, positive reinforcement is bribery. Mm -hmm. Well, bribery actually is not in, in the vocabulary of the behavioral sciences. It is considered unethical to shape people to do behaviors that are illegal (laughs) or inappropriate. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, so we're not going to argue with bribery as being good or bad. It's bad. But we're going to argue that what we're doing is not necessarily shaping illegal behavior.
0: Right, right. So we're going to definitely come back to that. I, I definitely want to take a deeper dive into that area of uh, positive reinforcement and some of the misinformation and quite frankly, a lot of the hyperbole that's out there uh, in, in reference to that. But I want to shift a little bit here to, uh, I tried to get you to name a theory, by the way, I was hoping, but uh, I didn't Sorry. think you'd take the bait. <laughs> but uh, I want to shift here to um, the the three-tiered Framework and uh, you know obviously we talk about the triangle uh, that of course is fairly ubiquitous at this point and I have two questions I want to explore with you um, you know whether you're coming at it from the angle of RTI or PBIS or MTSS whatever approach or label that that people use with it. We know that the triangle is, uh, you know, typically emerges at that uh, response rate of 80, 15, and five, 80% tier one, 15%. And those are just targets. It's not that it's locked in stone, but we know that that's kind of the response rate. So my first question is, where did the triangle come from? And how did how did we, and I'm using the royal we here, how did we figure out the 80, 15, and five designations for those tiers?
1: All right. Uh, again, a great question and one that we continually address and have addressed over the last 30 years, because it's like the first myth I told you before, PBS is a practice. Well, it's not a practice, it's a framework. So right. the reason I mentioned that again is because the framework has some, some tenets that make it a viable framework. One of the tenets is prevention. Yeah. We're all about kind of preventing the development of problem behaviors or preventing problem situations. We're in the business of preventing future problem behaviors from occurring again, that once they've already started to occur. Now, where we started in 1992-ish or so, actually a little bit later in 1994 with Hill Walker's work and some others, is we learned that if prevention is gonna be a viable principle, it needs to be something that it becomes tangible, something we can work with. So we stole from the public health literature, the notion that prevention is a tiered logic. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that if you look at the public health literature, it basically says we need to organize the world so that everybody can be healthy, successful, safe. And that everybody is the royal everybody. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, how do you prevent heart disease? Well, you can prevent heart disease by eating well, exercising, dieting, getting good sleep. That's tier one. That's universal. That's what we want to promote. Right. But there are some of us who need a little bit of extra in order to prevent heart disease. We don't exercise as much as we should. We sometimes um, don't get enough sleep on a regular basis and so forth and so on. So we might need to have a little bit of coaching And we might need to have some peer support. That's tier two. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit more intensive support. And there are some of us who, because of the bad luck of the draw, because of our lifestyles, whatever, have risk features. We might have diabetes. We might have heart disease. We might, we might, we might. And those increase the risks of heart attacks and so forth. So what we need to do then is come up with more intensive more individualized treatments, medications and so forth. That's tier three. Mm -hmm. Now we said that logic is, that makes great sense. Why can't we apply that to the social sciences, i.e. education? So Hill Walker and his colleagues said, when you're working with kids with emotional disturbance, they need to have an environment that is positive, caring and safe, tier one. Mm -hmm. We need to treat all kids, kids with behavior disorders with respect and and teach them about responsibility some of those kids in order to navigate their environments need something extra so we're going to provide them with some small group counseling we're going to provide them with some uh, peer-based mentoring we're going to provide them with some tier two more intensive and some of those kids like tom he's going to need an individualized plan that's unique to him because his behaviors require some high intensity high frequency high dosage experience tier three hill walker said if we're going to work with kids with behavior disorders we can't just do tier three with them we have to do tier two and tier three tier one with them they mm-hmm. need to create a total experience that's positive and preventative so then jeff and i and and rob we stole that from hill who stole that from the public health literature right and we said let's create school environments like that. Where everybody, all four hundred kids in a school, all fifteen hundred kids in a secondary school, all those kids have experience a positive, safe, ex, you know, a respectful environment. Some of those kids moving around that environment are going to need a little extra reminders. Mm-hmm. And then there's always Tom who's in that third third period class. He's going to need an individualized behavior contract. Yeah. But let's organize our practices, our interventions mm-hmm. around that tiered logic. Now, a couple more things, and I'll stop. Yeah, yapping away here. And that is the three tiered logic is only a logic. You could have four tiers, you could have seven tiers, you could have, you know, whatever. What's important is that we think about it as a continuum of experiences. So let me give you a very concrete, important example. Recently, there's been some work being done focusing on the impact of positive greetings at the door. We actually have really good research now showing that if teachers greet their kids at the classroom door, you can have a big impact on reducing problem behaviors in the classroom and increasing academic engagement when when the first direction is being given. Positive greeting at the door is a universal intervention. Good morning, Tom. Good to see you. Don't forget to hang up your backpack. It can also be used for tier two. Good morning, Tom. Good to see you. Don't forget to hang up your backpack. And by the way, Jane here is going to accompany you you to your seat to show you where to put your lunch. I've got a tier two intervention in place now. Then I might have, Tom, don't forget to check off on your self-management card that you got to class on time. Those are two tier two interventions being applied at the greeting at the door. And then there's Tom walking in the classroom, who I say to Tom, Hey, Tom, why don't you why don't you please go down to the counselor first before you enter the classroom, because the counselor has an important message to give you before you start your work. And that, that message is a cool off because you look a little tense to me. Mm-hmm. That's a tier three intervention being applied at the door. Now, in that example, I've done all three tiers at the door for all 30 kids, but I've also applied a tier two and a tier three intervention. It's a continuum it's something that you intensify based on how the kid walks in the door. It's how the kids walk in the school door. It's how the teachers experience the classroom. So I think it's really important to think about this as sort of dynamic and as a logic and as prevention oriented. The misrule is we label kids. Oh, Tom is a tier 3 kid. Wrong. Tier 3, Tom is not a tier 3 kid. He has a couple of tier 3 near, tier 3 needs, but he also needs to experience what it means to be respectful in the hallway.
0: Yeah. I love that um, idea of experiences and the the idea of looking at the tiers through those experiences. W- you know, you bring up public health and and the uh, the three tiers of public health. When you, it's interesting, you know, knowing that background to look at how the pandemic has been managed and handled through that lens and the idea of prevention and 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 preventing new cases from emerging and really applying that three tiered logic to what's happening through the pandemic actually does bring quite a bit of clarity uh, in, in terms of how public health agencies are or are, are approaching or have approached uh, health. When you think about the three-tiered logic though, the the triangle, if you will, what are some aspects of that triangle that you think educators continue to either misinterpret or misunderstand?
1: Right. Well, one of them I've just already mentioned to you, which is that, um, you know, labeling kids or labeling individuals, you know, and I just wanna elaborate a little bit about that. I just want you to think that I want the, the listeners, viewers to remember that all all of us have a tiered set of needs. Um, when I visited Jamaica, people there were speaking Patois. I had no idea what they were saying. I needed a translator to be standing next to me. I needed tier three supports for translating Patois. Um, in my research group, I know what it means when you say that uh, that there is a there's a probability significance, you know um, score. I would know had not know how to calculate that. I have a group of researchers who I fortunately get to work with who help me learn how to do those statistics. So I have some tier two needs in my own work. I think all of us have a set of needs and a set of experiences and practices. Going to the pandemic question, that's really an interesting one because, you know uh, vaccinations and so forth um, testing those that that's basically a tier one set of of strategies making it available to everyone uh, publicizing and so forth i don't know that in the united states we have done a very good job with tier two and tier three however there are individuals who might need a little bit of extra help to get access to vaccinations in their neighborhood because they don't have transportation they don't have the financial, whatever, you know, they don't have it as part of their peer group as being, you know, uh, prompted or coached. There's some people who actually oppose vaccinations and so forth, and the kinds of supports that are needed to help help them join or participate in the the prevention strategies there becomes much more intense. So, uh, I think we understand that there's a need for tier two, tier three supports. In a variety of different areas, not just in vaccinations and pandemic, but I don't know that we we'll always put those interventions in place. And I mention that because I don't know we do that in education very well either. We put in place, um, we some a lot of schools will come to us and say we want PBIS in our schools. We need help with Tom, and they're really asking for tier three supports for Tom, when in fact they don't have a good foundation for doing that delivery of tier three to Tom because tier one. Is not in place, so that's a long way of saying one of the, the troubles with the, the three tiered logic is jumping only to individual fa- uh, tiers and not thinking about the total continuum across. I want to go to one more point which I forgot to address, and then I'll stop again. And that is, you mentioned the 80, 15, and five. I forgot to mention that that is also part of the prevention public health logic. Basically, says that if eighty percent of the population is doing okay we're probably doing okay with our tier 1 universal interventions. That's also if you think about the pandemic response, um, there's quite a bit of comment from the scientists out there saying that if we can get 70 to 85, excuse me, 75 to 80% of our population vaccinated, we might have a jump start in future, you know, cases. That's where that 80-15 and 5 kind of falls in place. It's a sort of a target or a goal it might vary by problem how you differentiate that criteria it could be 60 30 and 10 based on what you're trying to address but for the most part the 80 15 and 5 serves as a good set of uh, milestones or guideposts for us to follow mm-hmm.
0: you know i remember uh, back in the early days of my own training and 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 learning from you that one of the breakthroughs for me with the the triangle was that idea of those experiences happening and being varied throughout the day that i might only need tier one supports in one of my classes that was a real breakthrough for me because i i certainly and i think this is typical in the early days of learning you kind of silo students even though we know we're not supposed to label them it's hard not to as you think about a student needs tier two supports therefore they need tier two supports in all settings all day all the time and the idea of being that it fluctuates that that you literally i remember you showing a triangle and there were little graphs that kind of went up and down saying that in physical education, I need tier three supports, but in, in, in English language arts, I might only need tier one supports and, and things like that. That was a real breakthrough for me. Uh, and I think it helps understand that this is a a continuum of experience that fluctuates throughout the day based on setting, based on need, uh, and and where the student is certainly. Yeah. Uh, I want to
1: restate two things in that comment. One is that you're absolutely right about how we have not differentiated but in the academic world we've actually done that yeah if you think about reading um george may have difficulty reading so he might need some tier some extra reading practice and even some individual tutoring but in math i don't need it right right? so i just i benefit from the tier one instruction um the second point is which you also kind of read you iterated and that is if you think about kids behavioral profiles you know i'm pretty good about self-managing my own behaviors but I'm pretty clumsy when it comes to interacting with others, especially in non-structured settings like hallways. So Mm -hmm. I might need some supports in the hallways for my social interactions. I don't need tier three supports in the hallways for my independence, because I can get to my class on my own. I can Mm -hmm. get to my locker on my own, but when I have to interact with somebody else in the hallway, I get clumsy. I get embarrassed. And I tease because I think teasing is a way to get attention and right. that isn't the way to get attention the right way. Right. And so I mess up and I get in fights and so forth and so on. So your, your points are really important and I think it's it it or it kind of reinforces the idea that we have this misrule that academic behaviors are different than social behaviors. Mm-hmm. Well the truth is skills and behaviors they're just skills and behaviors, right <laughs> They're things we do, they're things we'll learn. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing mystical about my cooperative play and my ability to read. Mm-hmm. They're all being shaped by the experiences I have in my instruction and by my interactions with others.
0: Two thoughts came to mind as you were responding there. Uh, the first being it just illustri- illustrates how labor intensive tier three supports can be for educators because of the finite and uh, levels or granularity that we have to get to in terms of identifying the different settings, the different experiences. You know all of the different triggers that occur and that investment in a foundation and universal supports in tier one and tier two really making the case for i guess figuratively trying to pull kids down the triangle because it is certainly uh more efficient at at each of the the tiers there uh to me that that really speaks to uh the importance of of investment as opposed to trying to jump uh to to tier three And the other piece that comes to mind is this, again, it illustrates the hurdle that sometimes many of us have. I wouldn't, again, I'm using the royal us because I don't think you and I have this. But the idea that when it's academic, we seem to not have an issue with differentiating between classrooms and academic subject areas. But as soon as it's behavioral, we, for some reason, there is this hurdle. And that leads me to the next question. And as we finish up here in part one, um, It's this link between academics and student behavior and you were just alluding to that and I think that we know that rather than seeing them as silos, we know that that link has been long established uh, between, you know, in academia, we know that that link between academics and behavioral support has been clear that when students reach high rates of academic success challenging behaviors antisocial behaviors tend to be low and when uh, academic success is low, challenging antisocial behaviors tend to be high. We know um, it's not causal, but, but we certainly know that reciprocal relationship has been there for decades. So what specifically does the research tell us about why that correlation is so strong? What, Where is that sort of link? And and the, sort of get into some of the specifics, maybe, George, about the connection between the two.
1: Right. I think one way to think about it is one way that I sort of sort of address that question is that I think it's important to remember that learning and teaching doesn't occur in a vacuum, it occurs in a social context. So, you know, I think about what I've learned from people like yourself and others in British Columbia about what what PBS looks like in British Columbia. Mm. Well, that's because you and I engaged each other. It's because you and I spent time together. It's because you and I organized opportunities for us to sit down and talk through or whatever learning about something academic requires that there be some social environmental uh, structures in place that allow that instruction to happen you can't teach somebody how to read if they're not attending to what you're presenting you can't Mm -hmm. teach somebody to read if they don't get feedback about what they're doing right and wrong you can't teach somebody to read when they're teasing or bullying a neighbor. You can't, you know, so forth and so on. So it's really important, I think, to understand that the association that you described is probably tied to the importance of one thing influencing the other. As you said, if kids are learning to read successfully, they're much more, uh, their self-concepts are better, their perceptions about their capacity to learn more is, higher, and they start interacting with others more positively. And that spins that circle around having more positive socials, you know? And so I think it's really important not to to separate the two, but understand how one is in fact bolstering the other. And you really can't have good learning unless you have good social environments or good social um, engagements to make that happen. I'll always remember at the university of washington when i was taught how to teach reading we spent more time on arranging the environment to get ready to read or teach reading than we did on the actual curriculum because curriculum is easy Mm -hmm. it's getting the kids organized in the right kind of circle it's getting the materials set up in a way that's accessible it's getting making sure that the teacher has a positive interact um, positive relationship with the student and so forth and so on that set of prerequisites enables the instruction to become much more efficient and much more effective. So I think, you know, it's it's important to kind of think about those two together. The, the other thing I want to kind of quickly mention is that is, is, is sometimes gets in the way is how we um, inappropriately treat academic and behavioral errors. When a kid makes an academic error, we oftentimes will say, and as we should say, well, let me teach you. Let me show you another way let me give you some more practice we actually take responsibility for kids failures or inabilities to learn an academic or to make them when they make a mistake on the social behavior side when tom blurts out a profanity we immediately say tom you stop that that is inappropriate you know that's and and we blame it on the student (laughs) yes that behavior is unacceptable absolutely right it's socially inappropriate at the same time, we have to ask ourselves, can we help Tom learn a better way of expressing his frustration? Mm-hmm. Can we can we teach Tom a better way of saying, I don't like being teased? Can we teach Tom another way of saying this works too hard? Can we actually set it up so he doesn't experience failure with that work, so he doesn't have to use those words to express his frustrations? We don't analyze it from an environmental perspective. We focus on blame, which is part of our part of, uh, what reinforces the split between the academic and behavioral kind of, mm-hmm. uh, of, instruction.
0: Would you then say that it is favorable practice to ensure that, um, all IEPs have both a behavioral, uh, and a set of academic goals, would you say that academic challenges should also be accompanied with behavioral goals and behaviorally based right. IEPs would have academic goals attached to them? Would you subscribe to that sort of, uh, yeah. purposeful mix? So let me
1: let me respond in two two ways. One is that each of us, all of us, all kids in classrooms, all of us that are learners are probably gonna have both academic and or behavioral needs. Some of them are gonna be more intense than others. Uh, Tom is really fortunate. He doesn't have a whole lot of academic needs, but he has a few social. So I I don't know that everybody has to have both. However, okay. and I think well, and not however, if you have a disability one of the hallmarks of special education is being able to identify the individualized needs of that learner so here's george george has had some difficulties getting along with others he's been identified as having some social emotional disorders okay it's pretty clear that he's going to have some behavioral goals and objectives that have to be addressed whether i need or not i need academic specific goals is gonna be based on whether or not I'm having trouble in academics. Mm -hmm. It could be that I'm having a little bit of trouble in reading because my behavior stuff's getting in the way. So what I probably might need is some tier two supports for my academics to support my tier three objectives and goals, but I still may not need an objective. Mm -hmm. But I really want people to remember that because George has some behavioral and academic goal, excuse me, some social and behavioral goals, he still needs to have good instruction regardless, right. tier one, right? Yeah. Because George has emotional disturbance does not mean that he doesn't get access to good instruction that all kids are getting access to. There is this overgeneralized misrule about, oh, he's emotionally disturbed. He can't read. He actually reads really well. Mm-hmm. You know, he just can't get access to reading instruction because of his behavior challenges. So it's important to not overgeneralize the problems. You're, I think you're absolutely right about that.
0: Yeah, to make sure that we we continually f- force that overlap or that Venn diagram between the two instead of creating right, those right. silos. Okay, George, last question for today as we finish up part one. And of course, listeners, we'll have part two with George next week. Uh, last question today. It's a question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And you can take this in any direction you wish. And I know that you're retired Uh, but I know education is still in your blood. So I'm going to ask you this question and you take it where you want to go. Uh, Educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night?
1: Uh, What keeps me up at night is, which is kind of an interesting thing because um, it's something I didn't think about when we first started the PBIS Center, but became very important to us three or four years into the effort. And so what keeps me up at night is our sometimes failure to pay attention to the accuracy of our implementation of an evidence-based practice Now i say those things aren't intentionally evidence-based meaning that i have some faith that it's going to work and implementation fidelity meaning am i doing it accurately mm-hmm. is the kid really going to experience how it's been designed to be implemented um i think what one thing as that you you brought up earlier is we sometimes give a kid provide a kid with a tier three intervention but we don't do it long enough intensely enough as the instruction book dictates we just do it okay you had it this morning therefore you're going to be okay the rest of the day Mm -hmm. and that's a failure to follow the the guidelines that we would say is really important for implementation fidelity So what keeps me up at night now is, you know, I've been out of the scene for two and a half years. I worry about whether or not people are doing PBIS with fidelity, that the framework and all its guiding principles and the practices that we have defined as being important to the continuum, that the systems that we've put in place, the teams, the administrative support, the coaching, all those elements are being uh, included in the implementation. Because if we just do a 45-minute in-service on PBIS and we say, go forth and do it, we're going to fail. One thing we learned in British Columbia from the work that you and others had done in in the implementation there was the importance of coaching and the importance of coaching of teams, not just coaching of staff. It's getting the teams up to speed so they can implement with fidelity with their staff. So implementation fidelity becomes such a key one. One last comment about the, what keeps me up at night. This has to do with the last eight, 10, 12 years or so of what's been happening. And that is our failure to tweak our implementation based on the cultural and contextual fit of the intervention. I know, for example, in British Columbia that we've done PBIS pretty well. We've implemented implementation, or we implemented with some pretty good fidelity, but I've also learned that in British Columbia and other places that we've not accommodated First Nations uh, culture very well. The language, their families, their communities and the kinds of experiences they bring to school. We've not done it very well in Australia with the Aboriginal culture. We've not done it very well with the Native Americans in the United States. We've not done it very well with kids of color. We've not done it very well with kids who come in from backgrounds that are different or poor. We've not done a implementation tweaking with kids who come in who have um, migrated or immigrated to the country. We've actually punished some of those differences as opposed to including them. So I think one thing that's important about implementation fidelity is to know that we might have to tweak it for a secondary setting versus a preschool setting. We might have to tweak it for a, um, uh, you know, a, a more wealthy environment in Vancouver than a, a more impoverished area. We might have to tweak it where the language, uh, dif- the languages are different. There might be two languages versus 12 languages being spoken. So I think implementation fidelity is being sensitive to the cultural and contextual fit as well. Some of the disproportionality and inequities and injustices we're seeing in our schools now is because of our failure to tweak what we know can work with what uh, we're doing. So let me conclude by saying, what keeps me up at night is a failure to implement and evidence-based practices. And the, 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 the easy way of thinking about this is, are you, Tom, willing to bet your next month's salary on the decision you made about the practice and the implementation you did today on the impact on student benefit? If you're not willing to bet your next month's salary on student benefit from what you just did, then you gotta go back and think about, is this the right practice that I'm implementing correctly? Because if, you, if you're if you not willing to, to, to bet your next month's salary, that's not that just gives me enough confidence in your R implementation. So now I can sleep better at night.
0: We'll have part two with George coming up next week. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk about our students' mindsets when it comes to the impact of feedback. Belief, of course, is powerful. When we truly believe something, we don't just think it, we feel it. When you believe, you know like you know like you know. It's unmistakable. Our belief about anything is usually what sets the wheels of success or failure in motion. It's Henry Ford who is often credited with saying, if you think you can or you think you can't, either way, you're probably right. When it comes to learning, it turns out belief is every bit as powerful. Many of you know how often I speak about the importance of developing student confidence as a precursor to maximizing student engagement and success. That the development and maintenance of confidence should be our first priority. With confidence, students will try harder and persevere through temporary obstacles and stumbles on their road to success. Without it, students are likely to give up and stop trying. So much has been written about the importance of failure in the process of learning that as teachers, we need to create an atmosphere within our classrooms where students view their initial failures as part of that learning process. Now, while I generally agree with that perspective, Without first developing student confidence and the belief of eventual success, failure becomes counterproductive. For students to view fail as what many refer to as first attempts in learning, they need to come into that learning experience with a confident growth mindset where setbacks are only temporary. Now, confidence according to Rosabeth Moss Cantor is grounded optimism, right? It's the sweet spot between arrogance and despair. Arrogance being the inability to see any flaws Despair is the inability to see any strengths. Confidence is having just enough of both. Confident students see themselves as learners because they have learned in the past. Now, when it comes to learning, assessment, and the use of descriptive feedback, it turns out that the research is clear that confidence plays a pivotal role in whether or not students will have a productive response to being assessed and receiving feedback. Consider this from all the way back in 1989. This is Kulvhevy and stock. Quote, Feedback has its greatest effect when a learner expects a response to be correct and it turns out to be wrong. Conversely, if the response certainty is low and the response turns out to be wrong, feedback is largely ignored. In other words, students only have to think they're right for feedback to have its greatest effect. If students don't expect their responses to be correct, then feedback is essentially ignored. What matters is how certain the students are about the correctness of their responses. John Hattie and Helen Timperley, 2007, drew a similar conclusion. Quote, the degree of confidence that students have in the correctness of responses can affect receptivity to and the seeking of feedback, end quote. The real key to the effective use of descriptive feedback is how receptive our students are to the feedback they're provided, which is directly related to their level of confidence. One of the keys to effective feedback, and this again comes from Kluger & Denisi. I talked about Kluger & Denisi last week as well. Feedback routines need to elicit productive responses. This is more likely when students believe they can learn. Confident students often invest more of themselves into reaching their intended learning goals. Again, this from Kluger & Denisi 1996. Quote, feedback is effective to the degree to which it directs information to enhanced self-efficacy, and to more effective self-regulation, such that attention is directed back to the task and causes students to invest more effort or commitment to the task, end quote. The bottom line is that effective feedback is the key to advancing our students' levels of proficiency in relation to the intended learning goals or the standards. However, it's the students' confidence or self-efficacy that maximizes their use of that feedback. Begin shaping the learning environment with confidence-building assessment practices that lay a foundation for positive belief in a positive outcome, and you'll have students more willing to persevere. To do that, we either unpack the learning into its granular underpinnings to literally start small so there are some early successes, or we look back at past successes and remind the students of how they overcame their initial uncertainty. I remember when my kids first learned to ski, they were deathly afraid and really reluctant to go ahead with their first lessons. Now We put them in private lessons each to get them off to a good start, just an hour, one or two of those, uh, and, and then we take it from there. Just before the lesson, when they expressed their fears and trepidations about skiing, I remember reminding my daughter, who was eight at the time, that she used to be afraid to ride her bike without training wheels. I remember reminding my son, who was at the time five, that he used to be afraid to put his face underwater and hold his breath. Reminding them of past successes helped them understand that this was yet something else that they might be afraid of or fearful of that they could overcome. Confidence today is often best achieved through early successes. However, if that early success has yet to be realized, then reminding your students of past successes and those uncertainties they overcame can also be an effective way to getting them to feel confident. Once they believe they can produce those desired results and those desired effects, students can learn anything. Remember, they don't have to be right. They only have to think they're right. That's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Also, you can email the podcast with suggestions or questions for Assessment Corner. That's TomshimmerPod at gmail.com. Next week, we'll have part two with George Sugai. And that, of course, will be the last podcast of 2021. We'll be back on January 10th after a three-week break. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you are so inclined, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends and colleagues. I really do appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone.